Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Seb and I were joined today by Peter Rutzler, who is the correspondent uh, for The Athletic for AFC Bournemouth. Uh, this, this episode is entitled, What's Going On at Bournemouth? And it really is that. Uh, in bullet point form, please, Seb, uh, let me know what we spoke about. So uh, it breaks down into quite neat sections. So we did a little bit on um, finance and the financial implications of relegation. Mm. We uh, covered the Ryan Fraser saga. Mm. Um, we did a bit on the new training ground the club are building, which um, mm-hmm. they've had to pause with during the coronavirus. We touched on Eddie Howe, uh, Jermaine Defoe, um, and we talked about sort of the, the team in general and why they're in the position they find themselves in. Yeah, yeah. Halfway through this episode, Alex Stewart joins uh, to give us a little bit of a tactical breakdown, tactical insight uh, from the mind of his into uh, AFC Bournemouth. And then we continue into the second half. And as uh, as Seb says, we talk about injuries. Well, there's also Jordan Ibe in there. A lot of stuff about Eddie Howe towards the end. I found this one fascinating. As a man who hasn't really watched Bournemouth much this season, there really was a lot of interesting things to talk about. It was like I was being forced into a kind of watch along with you on Saturday night. <laughs> sort of as Because you, you, um, you recorded it and watched it on a delay and you you were coming up on different bits of the game and uh, uh, providing less than flattering commentary on what you were watching. Yeah, well, actually, you know, I was very flattering about Crystal Palace, as I think, uh, you know, Bournemouth supporters listening will will fairly understand. Uh, they had a fantastic game. Bournemouth, less so. We do talk about the football. We do it in the second half. So if you get bored of us talking about finances or if it all gets a little bit depressing, uh, then, you know, you can just scooch forward. Although no, generally abso- speaking, absolutely was- not. You can't. We know we, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't want us at our kind of political you worst, you can do what you want. You do not deserve to, to hear us talk about the football. So no, there is positivity the in here, I should say. It's not. It's not all just doom and gloom. Although you know, fairly, there is a bit of doom and there is some gloom. Um, anyway, speaking of doom and gloom, you won't find that at the Athletic. Does that make sense? <laughs> does that make sense? Doesn't really. That's very does nice. It? No, that was very nice. It was a poor segue. The Athletic, the employer of me, uh, actually, <laughs> and again. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's so good, man. It really... Do you know what? I read all of Peter's stuff this morning before recording this episode. Bournemouth supporters, you should follow Peter on The Athletic. Absolutely fantastic insight, incredible knowledge, really fantastic updates. Uh, And the best thing about it is that if you are, hypothetically, a Bournemouth supporter, you want to follow for the best reads on Bournemouth and the best news on Bournemouth, you can do. But also, in doing so, for £3 a month with a 40% off offer, by the way, you also get access to... uh, 10 other sports. The same level of detail that you get for your club, you get for pretty much every other club you can imagine. Uh, so it, it's such a fantastic offer. And we are, because football's coming back, we're celebrating that by offering 40% off at the moment, which, as I said, works out to be about £3 a month for those in the UK, equivalent around the world, uh, and about 10p a day. I mean, that really is a good offer. Uh, so if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you can uh, subscribe there. Uh, I would highly encourage you to do so, and not just because they're my employer. They're the employers of you. They're the employers of me, um, <laughs> which I'm delighted about, of course. Anyway, uh, enough with that. Enough with it. Dispense with it. It's time for AFC Bournemouth. We leave you in the warm embrace, the cool hands of Peter Rutzler.
So Peter, headline detail at the moment is that the Premier League broadcasting revenue accounts for 82% of total revenue uh, as per Bournemouth's latest accounts. And also wages to turnover, I believe, is at 83% as well, which is the amount of money uh, that is made in revenue by the club, which is then spent on wages. That's the third highest in the league. Healthy is considered to be around 60. Um, for, for context, I think Everton and Leicester are the teams above, although neither of them are really in threat of being relegated this season. So it's a little bit of a different situation for Bournemouth. Does that concern you with the idea of relegation in mind? I think it naturally does. Um, I think with their wage bill was about 110 million from their last accounts, which was uh, June 2019. And I think 88% of their broadcast revenue goes on to wages. So considering how important broadcast revenue is for Bournemouth and paying their, their players, um, of course, it's, it's a major concern. I mean, obviously, there are the mitigating factors as parachute payments. Um, it's about £50 million drop. So it's about £45 million for next year. And then uh, if they go down um, and then player reduction clauses and things like that. But but when you're when you have a a financial model like that, which is very tight based on quite fine margins and especially in the current situation regarding the impact of the pandemic on football club finances as well. Um, of course, it's, it's definitely a concern. And I think, you know, that's, that's why for Bournemouth, there's so much at stake here. Um, it's relegation would, would lead to major changes. I don't think you can, you can argue against that. Um, and yeah, I th- that's, that's, I wouldn't say it's completely disastrous because I think a lot of the, the value that they have is based in their playing squad. Um, but again, the pandemic may change things on that front. So, But when when you have such a reliance on television money, having to remodel a club that quickly um, is a major challenge. And, you, and you've seen from the likes of, of Stoke and, and, and Swansea who have gone down that it is a challenge to to, to, to move people around and, and to, to rebuild and go again. Um, so that will be the biggest concern. Peter, I noticed also in the accounts that um, commercial revenue has remained pretty stable. It's around the kind of the, the ten million pound mark, um, and that no new major partners were announced during um, during the financial period. What are the, what are the um, obstructions for the club in terms of growing their commercial profile? Their commercial revenue has been pretty stable. I mean, it's grown a little bit in terms of the reach they have. I think their fan base has grown a little bit, but I think their starting point is so small. I think within it, you know, we have to look at their last ten years. They were a fourth tier club um, with a fan base that was very localised and and one that, you know, back, <laughs> more than 10 years ago, t- uh, people in the area would probably have two teams and the other one would be Southampton because you wanted a Premier League side and then your local side too. That's con- changed considerably um, over these past few years. And, and now you, you have the thing where, you know, if there are kids walking around the town, they'll be wearing Bournemouth shirts and, and not someone else. Um, and that's a slow process. Um I think the question has to be asked about, you know, the overseas reach. Um, of course, that's difficult when you have moved up that quickly. But they have now been in the Premier League for five years. Um, they, I think they've got they've got fan groups in the United States. They've got fan groups in Australia, but they are still very very small. Um, they don't tend to go on overseas tours either, so they're not. Uh, I think last year they only went to Spain um, again. So that side of it's not really been something they they have sought to develop. And I think there's that side of you know, the international reach, their own area is quite small. The stadium is very small, um, which has made it more difficult to bring people into the ground. I think those who have season tickets have generally been the same for the past five years. Um, so that's been one of the limitations. But again, when you when you have a model like they've got, um, where they're trying to compete, 
it means a lot of the, the revenue they're getting from broadcast money is going straight into the playing squad and they're not able to offset that with the commercial side. Um, it has grown, but just no, nowhere near the same scale as other, other clubs in the league. Um, can I just ask about the stadium? Um, obviously, actually, Dinkle is one of my favourite places to watch football in the UK. It's um, it's a brilliant environment and you're so close. You can actually hear that even without the pandemic, you can hear the players talking to the referees and to each other. And, and it, it's fantastic. But obviously, um, it comes with limitations. Is there been any appetite to expand that stadium? Um and it's kind of based in a, for those who haven't been, it's based in a, I think what you describe as, as like a sports park. It's kind of a, an enclave of Bournemouth. Um, are there limitations to what the club can do within that environment? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, it's, as you say, I, I love Dean Cork. It's, Dean Cork. it's, it's very unique. Yeah. Um, I think they like the fact that it's quite small as well. If you're in a wayside coming down, the, the dress room is very basic. It's wooden benches. It's quite a small space. Um, the fans are very close to the pitch, as you said, Seb, and that does help. Um, and they certainly missed. I've missed out since the restart. Yeah, and in, in terms of a new stadium, um, it's definitely been something they've they've looked at since promotion. Um, they have been quite optimistic about that. There were plans in place to both build a new stadium and expand the current stadium. They don't actually own Dean Court. It's owned by a property developer called Structor Dean. It was sold to them uh, in 2005. Um, they wanted to redevelop the South Stand, which is actually the Ted McDougall Stand. Um, it's actually a temporary stand. It was built in the championship. Um, they originally had just three, the three other stands, so they needed to cover all four, four areas of the ground. Um, and they wanted to, to redevelop that site, but they didn't think it was worthwhile to do that if they didn't actually own the ground. So that led to plans to build a new stadium, which would have been just on the other side of King's Park. There's an athletic stadium. Um, and the plans are in place. Um, they looked into it. They, they were working with the council, um, regarding planning permission and things like that and things seem to be going quite well and then it was parked in 2018 almost a little bit out of the blue um, and there hasn't been any other sort of discussions on it now it doesn't seem to be a project they want to do in the near future and I think when you actually look at the finances and as we we're talking about before it doesn't really make much sense for them to invest in a new structure of that size and uh, I wrote a piece for the athletic earlier in the season about it um, and if you if you compare it to say to say Brighton, um, their structure is about a ninety million pound build um, plus everything else that comes with it. Um, so that investment wouldn't actually be, you know, when you're increasing the capacity from twelve thousand as it is now roughly um, to about a twenty thousand to a thirty thousand seater structure, the actual income you get from that is not going to make it as worthwhile an investment at the moment, especially when you know you're paying so much for the playing squad to try and compete in the Premier League. Um, and the other big problem with it is the fact that um, the new stadium would incorporate the new tra- where the training ground is at the moment, so the two training pitches, which is adjacent to the current uh, Dean Court. Um, so the actual project that they are focusing on or have been focusing on is, is the new training ground, which I think is much more important for the club that they do build it. It's the day-to-day place. It is the workplace. It's where, they, where the players go every day. You know, that's, that's the area you want to be at the highest possible level. Um, at the moment, they, they have a, their academy is separate from the first team. So the first team are based at, uh, at Kings Park next to Dean Court. And the academy are based at Camford Sports Arena, which is um, a 20-minute drive away. Um, so bringing all those structures together has been one of the club's priorities. And that would make more sense. And the training ground pause was just uh, impacted by, presumably by the current financial situation as a result of the, of the pandemic. Is that correct, Peter? Yes, that's right. So my understanding is the club have paused constructing the training ground. They, they received planning permission for it 
in October. They actually had it had received it in July, but they wanted to refine their, their plans. So they were given the go-ahead in October. Construction had started. They started levelling the ground, uh, demolishing an old golf course uh, complex that was there before. Um, and they'd started work on two first-team pitches as well, but they have paused it. And I think that's more out of um, concern for the current situation and the financial uncertainty that surrounds all clubs at the moment, actually, really, um, especially with regards to a broadcast rebate. Um, those are things they're considering. So that's been paused for now. But I think that's such an important thing for the club. It's something they really need to, to develop. They need Eddie Howe has spoken frequently about leaving a legacy from their Premier League era. And if it can't be a new stadium, which doesn't seem as practical, um, then it has to be the training ground. Um, and so restarting that will, for, for supporters especially, we're desperately hoping that's, uh, that does come to, come to pass. Um, I've got a Bournemouth supporting friend and one of the things he talks about quite a lot is this legacy issue um, and the kind of the the lack of infrastructural improvement that um, that's resulted from this stay in the Premier League. Is there anything else other than the training ground which has kind of noticeably improved since the um, since the promotion, Peter? Yeah, well, I think on a on a basic front, I mean, they had to make so many changes when they when they came up. Um, they had to build a media suite, um, yeah. a whole press area. Um, they had to redevelop the training ground a little bit, um, and so those those little things are are important. Um, but in terms of tangible physical legacy that can survive a considerable period of time or would actually be transformational, we haven't actually seen that yet. And I think the big dilemma for Bournemouth is is balancing one competing in the Premier League to stay in the Premier League, which will naturally mean spending a lot of players and player wages. Um, and then also leaving something behind. Um, and they've tried to get the balance right with that. They've been quite slow on the infrastructure front, but they have had these training ground plans for a while and they are now building them, building it, sorry. Um, but, you know, if they do go down and the training ground is not built, then there will be the question of, well, what was the point? Um, and I think that's a fair one to ask. Well, this is, I mean, this is coming around to the question I really want to ask and, and do sort of forgive my ignorance if this is something that is familiar to most clubs who are about to be relegated or if this is, you know, I've got getting the wrong end of the stick. But when you look at Bournemouth's uh, financial situation unrelated to the pandemic, you look at the their reliance on broadcast revenue, the wages to turnover ratio, the situation with the pausing of, uh, of the training ground and, and as Seb mentioned before, the lack of improvement in commercial revenue growth, which is understandable for, for a lot of reasons related to regional fan base and, you know, again, how quickly they were promoted to the Premier League, as you said, Peter. But it's difficult to not look at this and think, they haven't really prepared very well for relegation. And of course, I don't, I'm not sure relegation was expected. Eddie Howe has been touted as a, as a fantastic coach. The team is actually very impressive and, and have played impressively over a number of years now. But, uh, you know, so maybe it's unfair in a way to compare them to a team like Norwich, who may, may well have been ex- expecting to go straight back down after coming up this season. But when you do make that comparison, it's very clear that unlike Norwich, Bournemouth don't appear to have prepared for relegation, um, what are your thought? What are your thoughts on that? Is that is that the wrong perspective, Peter, or do you think that's fair? I think there's a an element of truth to that. I wouldn't say they've not totally prepared. I think the general the vibe has always been we're fighting to stay in the Premier League every year, and the last few years haven't sort of reflected a relegation fight. They've always pulled clear before things be, have become serious. Um, I think when you look at what they've spent in terms of the players they've brought in. 
they haven't gone full Aston Villa and spent nearly £100 million on players, or, or Fulham, for example. Um, they've actually slowly redeveloped their squad, which was old, quite an older team with a lot more experience when they came up, uh, football league experience, to one that's actually the youngest now that they've had in the top flight. Um, and it's filled with players who they haven't resold um, yet for a profit. So that you know, you've got players like Joshua King, who they signed for a million pounds, Callum Wilson for three million pounds, Aaron Ramsdale has made a brilliant start to his career. He's at eight hundred thousand pounds signing. David Brooks was was twelve million last year. These are players with quite a high resale value, and I think when you factor that in, you know, and, and you think, well, if they go down, then you know, they, they they may have to to let some of these players go because they will want to play at the highest level. That's that's almost inevitable. Um, they would certainly recoup a lot of that that money and, and any sort of impact from relegation wouldn't necessarily be as hard. Um, and then coupled with that is some of the younger players they brought in. So Jack Stacey, Lloyd Kelly, Chris Meppham, um, players who are sort of the backups at the moment who they've seen as Premier League potential who could probably do quite well in, say, the second tier. So I think there's that element's been in mind. Um but again, you, you, you pull it back to it and, and in, you know, it's not something that you consider that they would have planned for. The, and you look at the amount that they have spent, it's still a lot of money and the wages to turn them. And you think, well, that, that's not, that's not the, the planning of a club that's thinking about potentially dropping down to the, to the next tier. So yeah, there's two sides to it, I think. Um, Peter, can I ask about Jordan Ibe? I, um, he's someone that fascinates me because I remember when Bournemouth signed him originally, um, by every kind of normal measure, you'd think that's a good, Maybe not a good deal because there was a lot of money on the table for it. But he's a good player. He's someone that under someone like Eddie Howe um, could mature into a really good player, potentially an England international. Um, and so logically, all the kind of all the all the dots uh, joined up, you know, theoretically at least. What's been the problem there? Because as far as I understand it, he's he's set to leave the club in July when his contract expires. Um, what's what's been the what's been the obstruction there? Why why has he why has he not taken to Bournemouth life? It's a difficult one. I think a lot of his his family and, and his friends are, are based in South London and, and that's where you know he, he's been he's been living of late as well and whether he fully settled and really showed what he can do I think that's been a major issue consistency has been a major issue um, the, the thing with Jordan I as you say you know everyone you speak to about him from a football perspective he was an exceptionally talented player he's so highly rated um, he still is nothing's changed on on that front it's more application, I think. Um, that's been a big problem. And this year has been a poor year for him. He wasn't completely out of the picture. He hadn't shone as everyone had expected. I think David Brooks last year played a part in that. He came in and did so well, much better than I think most people expected. And that really limited his opportunities. Um, and so he wasn't completely out of the picture. I mean, he made a couple of sub uh, sub appearances in the Premier League earlier in the campaign, but matters off the field have just completely overshadowed overshadowed everything um he crashed his car into a coffee shop in in july that led to a court case he was charged with um driving without due care and attention um and then found guilty of he pleaded guilty to the first charge and then was found guilty of failing to stop at the scene of an accident that caused fifteen thousand pounds worth of damage to the coffee shop he was given a 16 month driving ban and a fine um and i think that actual case sort of reflects it a little bit I mean in court it came out about the scenario of it um, it was in July so late July in pre-season for Bournemouth um, he'd been in a cafe in Croydon uh, this was his that's what he said in, in court um, 
And then he crashed it into this coffee shop in Bromley. It's called The Pantry. Um, at about 4 a.m., around 4 a.m., that was the time. Um, and while, you know, there was, it was centered around whether he, fit, he stopped, as he give his details to the, the, the cafe owner or, or a neighbor or anything like that, what was interesting from a, a football perspective was it came out in court that he was due for preseason training that morning. So he was going to be driven from South London to Bournemouth at quarter to six and he got home at 4am. So I think as much as, you know, the, the off-field court case, and he hasn't featured since that all came to pass. Um, you can read all about it in a big piece um, on The Athletic as well. Um, that sort of story, just that separate bit about you know, being out the night before pre-season training does sort of reflect how it's not quite worked out for him. Um, and he hasn't been training with the first team since since January. So he desperately needs a fresh start, I think. I think he's still young. He's 24. He's, there's a lot of talent there. Um, he just needs to find the right place to show it. You know what's really interesting is cause you talked about this earlier in the in the way that Bournemouth create chances and they're quite limited in how they do that. Now, within that context, it'd be quite difficult to um, design a player who is more perfect to play in that way than Jordan Ibe or the, what the perception of Jordan Ibe was, you know, the sort of the pace on the counter-attack, you know, quite a direct instinct. Um, I suppose, and I know this is us asking you to, to speculate, where do you think he'll land? Because he'll be available on a free. Um, someone you imagine will, will take a bit of a risk. Do you think he'll stay in the Premier League? Um, it's a difficult one, I guess. I, yeah, I'm speculating a little bit. Um, I think he may have to drop down to the Championship, I think. Um, he had a very good loan spell at Derby um, relatively recently, before his time at Bournemouth. Um, and I think maybe just finding his feet again, getting into a rhythm of playing regularly, playing with a freedom, becoming an important player could really help him. Um, he's got the ability. I think, that, like, like I said before, I think there's, there's no doubt he could be a Premier League player and a fantastic Premier League player. You know, he was really highly rated at Liverpool. I mean, when Raheem Sterling went to, to City, he was, it was comfortably felt that he could fill the void. So that's the calibre of talent he's got. He's just got to find his feet again. Related to another player now, Peter, uh, I feel like it's time for us to discuss Ryan Fraser. Um, there will, of course, be Bournemouth supporters listening to this podcast who will probably know the ins and outs of the stories. There'll also be non-Bournemouth fans who are approaching this for the first time. So I wonder if you could just take us back to the beginning and sort of walk us through what's happened with Ryan Fraser, where we're at now, and what efforts the club made along the way to try and change what eventually happened. Yes, sure. Um, actually dates back quite a long way. Um, if we start at the beginning of last season, so around September 2018, um, negotiations with, between Ryan Fraser and his representative were paused. Um, that came out in a statement from the chief executive, Neil Blake, last summer. Um, he then went on to have that fantastic season. Um, only Eden Hazard made more assists. Um, only Hazard and James Madison created more chances. It was fantastic a really key, important player for Bournemouth, linked up really well with Callum Wilson. Um, and that led to his last summer where, you know, he had a year left on his contract and there was talk of him moving to Arsenal. Um, but there were no bids for Ryan. Um, he said in an interview with the Scotsman that he didn't think anyone would pay a £30 million asking price. Now, I don't know if there was an asking price or whether that value was there, but that was sort of the public figure. That's figure was touted around and whether that's an accurate reflection of the asking price I'm not sure but because it became public it was a case of well someone's going to have to fork out that amount of money and he's only got a year left so it didn't actually happen um, 
So after a summer where a lot of clubs were interested, no one actually stepped forward with a bid. He, he rolled into this season um, and he just hasn't been the same player. Now, he's still been Bournemouth's most creative player and I think that's equally as damning as Bournemouth, of Bournemouth himself <laughs> and everyone else in, in the squad. But, um, you know, he's still a, still a good player. But the first four months of the season, he was not as effective. His body language wasn't great. Um, and then in January, he came out with an interview to, to BBC Radio Solent where he said, these past few months, I haven't been playing for the team. Um, you know, and I'll fight for the badge. I'll fight for the club. It's, I'm basically admitting that the contract uncertainty had affected him. Now, what was also going on behind the scenes, we understand, is that he changed agent from a long-serving agent to to join um, a new bigger agency. Um, again, that sort of uncertainty. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to ask. I think he's he's represented by Ethan Ampadu's agent, isn't he? Or have I got that wrong? Or was that the old agent? I don't know if it's Ethan Ampadu. I know he's moved from. He left a long-term agent who was John McLeish, um, who's been with him since his days at Aberdeen, all the way through to Bournemouth, um, and then they they changed in the end of last year um, to, to, to Wasserman Group. Um, so he's joined um, to the same agency who look after Mikel Arteta. So obviously that, that caused some, some uncertainty. <laughs> I love how those um, rumours work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so peppered within that, there have been these strange comments from Fraser as well. You know, he, he came out and said that he'd, he'd missed Mark Pugh who left last January, so January 2019. Um, on loan to Hull and then left in the summer. Sean McDonald, who left after the first or second year at the club, um, yeah, Fraser joined in 2013. Um, I think after Norwich, he, he came out and said he, he found it difficult to be told not to cross the ball so much at half-time, which was a nil-nil draw at, um, at the Vitality. Um, and he does have a tendency to be too honest, and I think those comments in, in January where he said, oh, I didn't play for the team, Eddie Howe sort of said, look, I don't think he hasn't been trying. I just think, you know, it's probably other factors that have affected him. And it was interesting that his form sort of picked up from that point. Um, we understand that, you know, he was actually confronted by a teammate uh, in training about his lack of effort. Um, he was told in no uncertain terms, you know, we know you want to go, but, you know, put some effort in. Um, and it was always his intention to run down that, to run down his contract. And of course, when you are playing that way, you're always looking ahead at what's going to come next. Um, so it was always the intention to leave at the end of this month, the end of June um, and then obviously with the pandemic interrupting the season, that changed things again completely and it left him in in what is, to be fair to him, a very very difficult situation, he's got to consider you know, do, do I stay and fight and help the club stay up or do I put my career prospects first and he is 26, this move would be a major juncture for him, it's a really important step Um so you can understand why he hasn't. But I think from a Bournemouth perspective, you know, he's the club are in real trouble. They really need him. As I said before, he's still their most creative player for a team that has really struggled in the final third. So for him to walk away is, you know, difficult to take. Um, and it was certainly tarnished his legacy. There's, there's no doubt about that. Has there been, um, I know, again, we're asking you to be speculative, but has there been any reaction inside the dressing room to this? Are there, uh, do you get any sense that players are... I mean, there's obviously a player's side to this. I understand that, but do you get any sense that people are resent are resentful of the right guys? I'm 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 getting off the Titanic kind of attitude um, that this seems to embody. I don't think there's that sort of oh, I need to jump ship because you know, the ship is sinking. Um, 
I think there's an understanding to it. I think there's probably a resignation that this was always going to happen. Um, I don't think his teammates will be too surprised that he's decided to to move. I think as professionals, as players, they imagine themselves in his scenario and what they would do. Of course, there's a difference when Andrew Sermon, Simon Francis, Charlie Daniels and Arta Boric have all extended and their contracts run out at the end of the season. Different scenario, though, is what I'd yeah. probably put to that yeah. in that. Now, for Fraser, it's such a big move that he's looking to do, whereas those guys are at a different stage in, in their careers and would probably want to stay at Bournemouth for longer. So um, I think there's probably an understanding. Of course, there'll be a sense of frustration, disappointment, because he is an important player. Well, I was going to say as well, I mean, he, he as, the, as the side's most sort of potent creative threat, do you fear that uh, his departure at this point in the way in which it has happened as a result of the pandemic and the decisions made, will have had, whether it's a, a, an impact on the dressing room causing players to feel resentful or not, causing players to feel worried about the chance of um, of, not, of avoiding relegation. You know, they, they've seen one of the best players that they play alongside every weekend. Uh, he's now not going to be there. They have, you know, eight remaining games, all of which are, are huge, you know, to quote all of the La Liga managers, I believe, from the weekend. They're all sort of championship final games. Um, so, you know, to, to, to go into that without one of your best colleagues alongside you, do you think it will have had a knock-on impact on, on the, the confidence of his, of his teammates? A little bit, but I think the, the big thing coming into these games has been who they've got back. And I think that positivity was probably the central emotion coming into the restart. Above all, it's David Brooks. David Brooks hasn't played for a year until uh, he made his return against Crystal Palace. Um, He's a massive loss. Like, he's a massive loss to the way Bournemouth play. I think we could see that on, on Saturday. He's the only player who looked to have that invention to, to beat a player one-on-one, to, to, to create an overload himself. Um, so having him back has always been, well, Fraser's going, but we've got him back. And then also Arnav Danjuma, who we haven't seen very much, very much of. And he was signed last summer. He's an exciting left winger recruited from Bruges who's had two successive foot injuries that have kept him out as well. So having both of those two available as part of you know a general package where the number of injuries in the Bournemouth dressing room have just have declined because of the pause, um, that's been the major lift. Now, of course, they lost their first game back. So I don't know what the impact will be after that. But I think coming into those games, I don't think there was too much concern with, with Fraser going because as I said I think most probably expected it and one other player I want to talk about before we have a quick break is Jermaine Defoe um, I mean it's reported that he's earning £60,000 a week uh, he's the club's top earner obviously that deal expires in this summer but how how has that been justified throughout its time Peter? Um, I don't think I don't think he's the top earner I think that's Callum Wilson uh, right. he signed a new contract last uh, last summer but you know Defoe came back and didn't play as Key a role, I think, is probably wanted to. I, I think it's a lot of money to spend on Defoe. I think he was coming in from a from a large wage as well. But yeah, I think when you look at the fact they already had Lees Musette on the books, a player who's really highly rated, um, and you you think, well, what, why did they sort of need Defoe? But then again, you are considering that they had Callum Wilson who'd been out for, with two serious injuries. Defoe was a you know is a, a reliable goal scorer at the highest level, and he's, he's still scoring goals for Rangers now. Um, I think he served a purpose. I think you can probably raise questions about the contract um, for sure. Um, but um, yeah, it's one of those. There probably was an element of sentimentality. He did have that fantastic loan spell back in 2000 where you know he scored in 10 games in a row, um, which is the league record, joint league record at the time. Um, but I think there was a utility to it, an expensive one for sure. Um, 
but there was that side to it. Okay, well, we're going to step off for, for 10 minutes now to chat to Alex Stewart, uh, who has a tactical perspective on mostly the weekend's game. When we come back, we will talk to Peter about that game, uh, about injuries and a few other things too. A lot of people have been talking about the absence of, of Ryan Fraser and obviously, you know, from, from Bournemouth's perspective, he last season was exemplary. He provided a lot of the creativity that they, they were otherwise lacking. He was getting 0.2 goals, 0.4 assists per 90, um, really, really impressive numbers. Um, and him and Callum Wilson together last season really drove Bournemouth on. But this season... Uh, they've both dropped off substantially. Wilson's got eight goals, which is you know still their their top scorer. But Fraser's um, output, he's only got one goal and four assists, so that's point zero four goals per ninety. That's down point one six, and he's producing half as many assists per ninety. So yes, it is going to be a, a, a sizable gap for them, but it's less of a gap possibly than than you know what what he was doing last season and maybe his performances this season have been less impressive because the contracting was hanging over him because he knew that he wanted to get out because you know Bournemouth's performances were were not what they were last season and and he figured that maybe he would be on the move anyway it's it's very very hard to know uh, David Brooks came back from a from a long term injury, Alex, and uh, although he looked a little bit rusty playing, he certainly did look like he can bring some creativity to to the side that's that's much needed, right? Maybe I know he doesn't play in the same position as Ryan Fraser, but perhaps there's a kind of like for like in terms of creative output there. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think the danger with a side like Bournemouth is always that they put their creative eggs largely in one basket, and so. Against Crystal Palace, um, who I think we should just briefly mention were absolutely superb in that game. Um, you know, defended very resolutely, scored a beautiful second goal. Um, Brooks was really the only Bournemouth player who was able to find space between the lines. Uh, he had this kind of slightly freer role pushing up from central midfield. So it was kind of like a 4-1-4-1 with Brooks slightly in the hole um, behind uh, Callum Wilson, but, but you know, drifting left and right and was, was always the guy who was making himself available between the Crystal Palace lines, which, to be fair, didn't mean that he was finding huge amounts of space because there wasn't a huge amount of space between the Crystal Palace lines. They were, they were really, really well uh, organised. But what it did quite clearly show is that apart from the deeper passing range and some of the dynamic running of Lewis Cook from central midfield, Bournemouth really were only able to look for Brooks as the creative option. So yes, he can take some of that burden off Ryan Fraser. I think the danger for Bournemouth is if they don't have anybody else who's able to contribute that, then teams will find it easier to mark Brooks if he's playing centrally because central areas are more congested. You know, a lot of what Fraser was able to do was was because he was playing in a wide position and so he was able to take players on. And it, it does mean that Bournemouth's options are limited if Brooks gets shut down. Yeah, I mean, it, what was interesting about watching the game against Crystal Palace was trying to uh, work out in which aspects that Bournemouth had, the, had an inability to take those creative passes or processes uh, to to an end point or even in some cases just to a, an attempt on goal a simple shot would have been nice um, uh, versus how 
resolutely, as you say, Palace defended and how much of the space that Palace closed down. I mean, I appreciate that Palace were playing a back five at times. They were encouraging Bournemouth to try and take it around the outside. And when that happened, particularly Van Anhol on the left, you know, the, the speed with which those players came out to close down, you felt the whole way through the game that um, the Bournemouth w- were succumbing to the press so easily um, that they were always half a step behind. So it's very hard to, to try and work out which of, which of those two it, it had more influence on the game. When you're watching a game of football like this one, Alex, how do you uh, try to, to sort of tell the difference between those two things? Um, it's really, really difficult. Um, and this is always the problem with, you know, when we're, when we're producing any kind of tactics video, for example, is to try and get an aggregate of how a team plays against different opposition because different opposition poses different problems. They have different strengths and weaknesses. And obviously teams adapt on a sort of game by game basis to, uh, you know, mitigate, uh, opposition strength or, or exploit opposition weakness. So ideally what you would do is you you take a kind of broad sweep of how Bournemouth play but of course in the sort of post pandemic lockdown period it's everyone's sort of slightly starting from scratch aren't they and and I know one of the things that people were saying about Bournemouth going into this game was that Eddie Howe was really confident because he had more of his players back from injury than he'd had previously and he was able more or less Ryan Fraser aside to select from a a whole squad so I was kind of expecting more from Bournemouth. Um, and and I think the issue for them really is is sort of what I was saying in part about David Brooks is that Bournemouth on paper have have nice players who are capable of doing good things, particularly in, in central midfield. I think, you know, Lewis Cook is very good. Philip Billing, who was uh, a substitute, is, is a really combative, good ball-winning player. Jefferson Lerma, likewise, who has actually a bit more passing quality I think than people necessarily give him credit for but beyond that Bournemouth seemed to really really struggle with um, with penetration so the issue that they seemed to have a lot was they could circulate the ball they could keep possession relatively well yes Palace pressed excellently and forced them into particular areas of the pitch but there was insufficient movement um, so what what you're always looking for is the the penetrative pass that can bisect two or three opposition players and and find a player in, in between the lines or a player making a run in behind. Bournemouth just didn't have that ability to sort of change the vertical focus of the attack. So what ended up happening was, you know, they could pass the ball and the ball would go back and the ball would go round and then they would try again and, you know, Wilson would run into a cul-de-sac or, you know, I, I think it was interesting that some of their most dynamic moments came either from when Smith was cutting infield from from left back uh, and sort of looking to cut into the box um, or when Lewis Cook was carrying the ball forwards, breaking, you know, the first or second line of, of the Palace press and was then able to generate some some momentum. But really, apart from Most Brooks, of which happened early on in the game as well, right? Exactly, Before the first goal. It did. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. So, you know, Callum Wilson was was quite a kind of static focal point. And and I do like Wilson as a striker, but you know, he was he wasn't dropping off quite so much. And and I think, you know, when Bournemouth were most successful last season and even towards the beginning of this season, they they were mostly playing with a front two um, of of King and Wilson. And so, you know, you had a player dropping off, you had a player pushing up onto the centre-backs. 
that created that kind of vertical spacing that allowed for these progressive passes. But playing Wilson up front on his own with Brooks trying to move forwards into that space meant that they just didn't have enough of that movement. Um, And I thought, you know, King playing as a left midfielder looked kind of isolated. Um, I, you know, I would prefer to see him up, up front alongside Wilson and then you can get a bit more of that dynamism going. So I think Bournemouth are kind of, they're kind of pretty, you know, they, they do a lot of things tidily and nicely, um, but they lack that kind of really incisive, sudden acceleration like Palace's second goal. Bournemouth would never have been able to score Palace's second goal in that game because they weren't getting players that were making the run in behind and they weren't getting players that were making runs from deep that would have facilitated that kind of move. And Palace only did it a couple of times, but they did it really effectively. Um, just a quick one, and I'm going to speak to to Pete uh, Peter about this as well. Um, but Bournemouth obviously are in 18th place. They're in the relegation zone. Uh, West Ham just uh, above them on goal difference and Villa and Norwich, of course, below them. All teams uh, losing at the, uh, in their first game. Fixtures-wise, Bournemouth... Um, are at home to Newcastle United, which is obviously a huge game. Uh, and then they go on a tricky run, Alex, which doesn't really end. So they're away at Manchester United. They're at home to Tottenham. They're at home to Leicester. They're away to City. They're, there, they're then at home to Saints in a in a derby. Uh, and then they're away at Everton on the final day of the season. Can they stay up? It's very difficult to say that they can, isn't it, at this point? I mean, it, it is all really tight around that end of, of the um, the table, obviously, um, you know, and... Where do you see them picking up points there, though, in, the, in those fixtures? Like, is it, I mean, Wolves is going to be an incredibly tough game. Newcastle have just won their first game back. They've got a little bit of yeah. momentum. It, it doesn't really, it doesn't, there's no obvious no. fixtures, are there? And, and I think what we saw against Palace was that, that, that Bournemouth's exact weakness is the sort of thing that... Teams like Wolves and Newcastle who are, I mean, let's let's take nothing away from Wolves' quality going forwards because they're an excellent team in that regard too. But Wolves and Newcastle are both teams who are really, really good at staying compact. They're really good at making themselves hard to break down. So Bournemouth are, are absolutely going to struggle there. I think against Newcastle, maybe they can hope that Newcastle's attackers are, are misfiring, but then Sam Maxim looked really good yesterday. Um, I, I, you know, I think against Wolves, that's probably unlikely because Wolves have got such a, a good attack. Maybe against Southampton, they might pick up points just because Southampton's slightly more chaotic and open style of play might allow Bournemouth some space. Um, potentially against Everton, who I, I didn't see um, much of that, but you know, Everton were were apparently looking slightly directionless as per. But that, but then you're talking about the kind of the final two fixtures of Bournemouth season, and and depending on what's happened around them, you know, they they could be they could be dead and buried by then. Um, so it, it it's looking like the bottom three in terms of it's it's hard to say in terms of quality with Norwich because I really you know I feel Norwich are better than where they are. But with Bournemouth and Villa, you know, it, it, it's hard to see those, those teams having enough to, to break out of the position that they're currently in, even though the teams above them aren't necessarily that great.
Okay, uh, the game against Crystal Palace, first after the restart. Were, were you there? <laughs> were you <laughs> the counted? Your voice there sort of sucked out. <laughs> first game restart. Uh-uh. Um, I was there, yes. It was a very strange experience because everybody has said um, it was very underwhelming. Um, after so much positivity, of so much build-up, um, I think what really struck was the lack of intensity in those opening 20, 30 minutes. Um, they looked a yard off the pace compared to Crystal Palace. Um, Eddie Howe said afterwards uh, that he was happy with his preparations and everything like that. And it was more the occasion that got to them. And Bournemouth have been like that on a, on a few occasions. I think back to uh, the match at home against Watford in January, where there was a lot of build-up. They knew it was an important game. They'd been on a poor run from losing to Brighton to losing to Norwich, where Steve uh, Steve Cook handled the ball with his with his hand um, and got sent off for it. And there was a big build-up to that game and it just fell flat and they lost 3-0. Um, and although there was no supporters in the ground, it did have that sort of similar feel where the team were just a bit uh, struck, um, tense. Nothing was built on intuition. Everything was slow. It was laboured. They were a yard slower than Palace. They... Everything felt very laboured. Um, yeah. Well, I tell you what, I spoke to, to Alex Stewart about it. Uh, one of the things that, that we talked about was the idea that it's quite difficult to, um, I suppose, pull apart the difference between Crystal Palace having an excellent game and probably being one of the better teams uh, to play their first game on the restart uh, and uh, and Bournemouth n- just lacking that ability to, to create and have that final penetrative pass. Um, you know, the, the feeling that there wasn't enough happening around David Brooks, that who seemed to be the only player really capable of of those, um, well, of playing in that, in that kind of tight space that Palace forced Bournemouth to. Uh, what is your feeling there? How, how do you weight that one way or another? No, I think that's, you know, that sums up Bournemouth, probably not just this season. You could even probably extend it past 18 months, actually. They, right. they do really struggle um, to break down teams that give them the ball. They really do find it difficult to use possession in a constructive way. Um, they're a team that seems to do very well against teams that are better than them or, or, or like to be proactive. I mean, their best performances this season have come against Chelsea away, uh, where they where they snatched a 1-0 win, when they beat Man United at home, that was a 1-0 win. They did very well against Tottenham away, against City at home. And they were quite unlucky, actually, not to get something from Liverpool before the pause. And those are the sort of games that they seem to, to step up in and, there might be two factors to it, really, because Eddie Howe himself said afterwards, you know, about the occasion. In those games, they've got less to lose. They're a lot freer. There's less of that pressure. So that's one one element. And then also, it's just this inability to really be constructive in possession. Um, they have sort of changed. I think everyone associates Bournemouth with that sort of attacking, free-flowing style that when they came up with, and that's sort of perpetuated when it they've become far more of a counter-attacking team in the last couple of seasons. Last year, it was very effective with the likes of David Brooks, um, who is so good in those transitions. Um, this year, they, they've it's almost gone too much the other way. They can't quite seem to defend well enough. They can't create attacking opportunities. And, and teams tend to just sit off them and say, OK, try and break us down. And they haven't been able to do that. Um, I think they've only won 12 matches in the last 18 months. Um, they haven't picked up anything on the road this year either. So, So when you look at their remaining games... The home games were felt to be the most important ones. Um, they've got Newcastle to come, um, Southampton at home as well. Those two are games that they would probably want to win in. Um, Leicester and Tottenham as well. 
you know, Tottenham had were sort of wobbling before before the pause, but both Tottenham and Leicester under Brendan Rodgers will probably like to sit back a little bit and they're very good on the counter-attack. Southampton are probably the only proactive team there. Newcastle will just sit in a low block. They they hate possession. Um, so that doesn't bode well when you think about it from that perspective. Um, so that then means you look at the away form and as I said, they haven't won a game, um, haven't picked up any points on the road actually in 2020. Uh, but they've got to go to Manchester United. They've got to go to Manchester City. They go to Wolves on Wednesday night. Um, they go to uh, Everton on the final day of the season. Uh, they're very tough games. Um, and, you know, they might play in a way that suits Bournemouth. You know, they do, they will come onto them a little bit more. And that means they will have some more space in transition, but they're hard, hard places to go and get results. Um, and that's the worrying thing. And what really does have to change is, you know, they have to be more proactive in possession. They need to be more creative. They need to be, uh, more fluent and more creative um, in their home games. Um, and that's why the Palace game felt so pivotal. Um, to see it play out in a way that was very similar to their poor run in December, January was quite disconcerting. So it's going to be a tough, tough, tough few weeks. Where do they find those answers on the pitch? Particularly if, you know, Ryan Fraser is is, is not an option anymore. I thought Dan Schumer, when he came on, looked sharper but although you know bearing in mind he's coming onto a game coming into a game where he's been sat on the bench watching for I don't know better part of 60-70 minutes very aware of the stagnant way in which which Bournemouth were actually playing so I suppose anyone with any positivity might have made um, a bit of an impact um, but where, where, where do they find those creative answers on the pitch now? I think there's a lot of pressure on, on David Brooks um, I don't think it suited him playing in central midfield against Palace he can play in there and he, he does like to drift into those areas to be quite a dangerous threat um, but it will be David Brooks. It will be Arnab Danjuma. Um, he was very lively, as you say. Uh, he, he wanted to commit defenders. He wanted to, to to get in behind Palace, and they didn't really have anyone on the team willing to do that. Bournemouth before that point, apart from from Brooks, losing Joshua King will be massive. Hopefully, his injury isn't serious. But losing losing him is at this stage is is a big blow. Um, but those are the players you, they're going to rely on. But it's. Is there any update it's a, it's on his a, injury? There's no update on, on his injury at the moment. Um, he appeared to walk off afterwards, but I mean, the fact that he's had to come off is, doesn't really bode well and it didn't look great on the replays either. So, um, no, but they will have to rely on the likes of Brooks and, and, and Dan Juma. Um, Callum Wilson, you know, he hasn't had been the same player this year. He's probably been impacted by Ryan Fraser's struggles himself. But... Um, He's not had the same service either, so it's it's uh, you know they they need something, they need a spark, they need another moment. I think before the the pause, they sort of got that when they played Brighton at home. They it was just one moment, one moment of uh, one spark, one moment of magic that that lifted them. Um, one goal from from Harry Wilson, and then it said it, it set them on a run. Um, obviously, they've restarted in a in a sluggish way, and they'll need to find something again very quickly. Peter, you mentioned the injury to uh, to Josh King there, um, and injuries have kind of been um, a continuing theme with the club. Uh, Lloyd Kelly has been gone for most of the season, as you mentioned. David Brooks has come back, but only after a, an eleven month absence. Um, why has this been such a problem? It's it's something that's been an issue for Bournemouth, I think, throughout their Premier League stay. Really, this year it's really hit. It's really hit them hard. Um, you know, at times they had Eddie Howe would have a third of his squad unavailable. Um, David Brooks has been the big miss, but he's not been alone. Lloyd Kelly's had different issues. Um, I think uh, he's had a, his most recent one was a hamstring problem. Um, but I think every 
player who's made an appearance this season has missed a game. Um, I think the one I wasn't so sure of was Philip Billing, but he missed Crystal Palace for an ankle injury. So um, that's kind of reflects the, the position that they're in. Now, when it comes to why this is happening, Eddie Howe himself said um, earlier this year, earlier this season, that you know they'd made mistakes, um, particularly when players are coming back, um, which I think is just a, an admission that not everything's gone right. Um, they have tried everything. I think when they in those first few years in the Premier League, they had a spate of knee injuries, ACL injuries. Callum Wilson got two. Simon Francis got one. Lewis Cook, uh, those two players have only only came back this season. Um, Tyron Mings was another one. Um, and the club sort of went top to bottom with their research into it. Um, they checked the tension of training pitches, um, the length of the studs that players wear. Um, and since then, they've actually sort of They've used um, Aspatar International Hospital, the, the sports medical facility in Qatar, um, uh, a specialist called Bill Knowles out in the United States um, to really try and give their players the best form of recovery and to really work on why this is happening. But they never really found a, a cause per se. They've had a lot of hamstring injuries this year, which has been notable. Um, there's, a, there's a long list of, of names who, who've had them. Steve Cook's the most recent one. He picked, a, picked one up in... In against Liverpool and I think part of it becomes sort of a cycle where when you have certain players out who are in key positions you're then you're then requiring your key players to play more games than perhaps they would want not necessarily would want to but um, would normally do so without rotation um, and that can spiral and led to the point where you know you'd have I think against West Ham they had players on the bench who, who were carrying niggles I think Jefferson Lerma had a niggle against Brighton in, in late December as well, and he was he was named on the bench but couldn't really be brought on, um, and that's that puts you in a very difficult position. It really affects confidence, and that in turn is it's been a massive factor for Bournemouth. There's no doubt about that this season. I guess the final thing I'd like to end on, Peter, is a discussion about Eddie Howe. Now we've talked about some of the sort of team specific issues from the season. I think the the, the stylistic change and the evolution in their time in the Premier League is, is is probably a little clearer now. But has there been any unrest with Hal? Because some of the problems have you know have been going on for quite a long time. The defensive frailty, especially. So, well, obviously he is an heroic figure and he's considered as such sort of throughout the the Premier League. Is his relationship with supporters as positive as it always was, or is there any reluctant acceptance that something might need to change, even if the club? survives is it is it thinkable i think with eddie howe i think as you say his his position and what he's done for the club means there's no i don't think there's any sort of reality in which he could be sacked or anything like that um it would have to be sort of his own decision a sort of mutual agreement for him to move on i think in terms of supporters their you know their their loyalty will to him is you know it's as you'd expect it's it's almost unconditional really right um is it the sort but of the closest thing to Alex Ferguson? Do you know, do you know what I mean by that in comparison? Oh yeah, 100%. I, when I compare Eddie Howe, you, you think of Ferguson and, and United, you think of Clough at Forest um, in terms of the loyalty between the two. And um, I mean, Clough went, you know, sent Forest down, and I, I, you know, I think if Eddie Howe brought the team down, I think everyone would think, well, he's the best man to bring us up. He got us promoted three times. I'm sure he could could do it again. And everyone you speak to about Howe as a coach. It's a fantastic coach. I mean, every, players who've left, they always say they don't know quite how lucky they were when they had him, which is, I think, is such a compliment to Eddie Howe. But all of that said, 
Um, I think there is a sense among the supporters because this the sort of malaise that Bournemouth have been under for is has been going on for, for quite some time now. Um, that something does probably have to to change. Now, I don't necessarily mean Eddie Howe has to change. Uh, whether that means new coaching ideas, um, new personnel, new thinking, whatever. Um, that I wouldn't say everyone is ringing endorsements at the moment about the way the team are playing, and it's very hard to do because the team have been have been poor for quite a considerable amount of time. Um, but like I said, I, I think the idea of him being sacked or anything like that is 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 not not in the equation. One of the things we've um, we've touched on is kind of these these long term deficiencies um, in the team, like this sort of the um, the limited ways in which attacks can be built, the lack of a kind of a a sort of another Brooks figure, someone that can help the club play on the front foot, on the team play on the front foot. How do you think those, um, and also the defence actually, because that's been one of the kind of the frailties throughout the Premier League period. How do you think these things impact on on the perception of how, like I, I agree with you, like every everyone you speak to says the same thing, like really, um, really detailed oriented coach. It's like something that somebody would say about Pep Guardiola, for instance, just someone that really understands the kind of the minutiae of the game. Um, but it's quite hard to ignore um, some of these longer term trends. Is that kind of, is that how you feel about it, Peter? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's sort of the, the, the paradox at the moment. Um, yeah, by all accounts, he's a fantastic coach, yet we're not quite seeing the performances that reflect it on the, on the field at times. Um, defensively, that's been the key issue. I think that's why they sort of switched from this very attacking, outscoring mentality to one that was more on the counter-attack to be built on a solid foundation. Now, the issue has been that they haven't been able to build that solid foundation. Um, Nathan Ake's been fantastic. Steve Cook is a very dependable servant. I think they've struggled to replace Simon Francis and Charlie Daniels at, on either side. I Jack suppose Roy Kelly was one of the young. players that was supposed to be that, you know, one of those guys long-term, wasn't he? If he had yes, not exactly. Injured. He, he was actually signed, actually, as a, as more of a centre-half, I think, longer term. But he can play on the left side and he would certainly have been a solid option in, in that position. Um, Diego Rico's had a better season this year. Um, very good at set plays and, and very good in the final third, which has been important and a key requisite for a Bournemouth fullback. But he's not very good at retaining the ball. Um, his in-play um, contributions have not really helped the team in the way that probably they would like. Um I mean, Jack Stacey's come in and done well, but I think as we saw against Crystal Palace, he's still quite young. He's still new to the Premier League. He was playing in League One last season. So that's quite a step up. So I think that's one area in which they've, they've, they've struggled. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, these are long-term issues that haven't quite been addressed. Um, the goalkeeper issue, of course, was one that was last year. Um, Eddie Howe cycled through Asmir Begovic, Arta Boric, and, and then Mark Travers too. They actually seem quite well stocked now, considering Travers did, is very highly rated. And Aaron Ramsdale's come in and done, super, done superbly well. He's been Bournemouth's best player. He's been player excellent, Ramsdale. Yeah. He's been really, really good. Yeah. So that's one part of the jigsaw sort of solved. But then I think you have to think more broadly. I think midfield is an area they try to improve on. Jesson Lerman has been fantastic for them since he's come in. Philip Billing seemed to really solidify that area at the start of the season, but then at a cost of their creativity. And then that spiralled into they start conceding easy goals, cheap goals from mistakes continuous mistakes very easy poor mistakes um, which you can put down to maybe confidence um, as well as ability um, and we sort of lost that that sort of nice balance that they had um, and they've been trying to regain it ever since so maybe it's a holistic thing I think not their pressing game hasn't been as um, coherent this year at times it's been excellent at t- other times they, they really do fade 
Um, some of the home games where you're expecting the team to come out firing, they, they've lacked that impetus and the crowd have not been able to get involved in the game and the atmosphere becomes a bit tense, which seems strange for the vitality, which can really fire the team over the line and definitely did during their championship promotion season. Um, so there are lots of little things that have sort of become unstuck um, and they just haven't been replaced at the moment. And I think that's one thing they really do need sort of a, not a wholesale rethink, but a real assessment of where things are going wrong and, and then try and address them um, because, or oh, who knows, I mean, the, the team could go down by this point. So it's, yeah, it's, those are the, the, the major issues that have been ongoing for, for some time. What, what do you see in, in Eddie Howe's future, Peter? I still feel he can play for can play for. I still feel he can. <laughs> he probably could. Coke. <laughs> well, um, I still think he could um, coach at a much higher level um, than he is now. I think well, the question that's always been asked of Eddie Howe is whether he feels there's a ceiling at Bournemouth, and he was actually asked that this year, um, and he he said no. And I think if he ever did, Bournemouth wouldn't be where they are now. Um, but I think. You look at the limitations of, of Bournemouth. We've been talking about them from a financial perspective, from facilities perspective. Um, he, he will want to test himself. I don't think he's an ambitious coach. Um, he will want to test himself at a high level. Can he do it in a, in a bigger environment? And the problem, of course, is when you have a you don't want to have a relegation on your CV um, because of the implications that could have. But I think could he work at a club like an Everton or? I say Leicester now, but Leicester have sort of taken up a level. Um, West Ham, before their struggles this year in terms of the the facilities and the backing they could have, and Newcastle, for example, if they get the backing that's that's expected, um, I think he will be wanting to push into that top half to be trying to get onto that high stage because I think as a coach and as Seb was saying as well, everyone highly respects him. He's, he is a fantastic coach, um, and whether you know a fresh start could could help him, I don't know, but. Um, yeah it's I think look I still think there's an upward trajectory for him I just wonder if you know if you stay for too long in the same place whether things can become difficult I think we look at Mauricio Pochettino at Tottenham and I wonder if how it's worked out for him where it's seemed very long term project um, how that can sort of happen now I'm not saying that you know that this is the, the, the players have down tools for him or, or anything like that or um but there's no getting away from the fact that the last you know, year or so, 18 months, is, have not seen progress in the way that he'd probably want. Um, the squad's been remodelled, it's younger, there's a lot of potential in it, um, but they haven't been able to push on in the Premier League um, and take that next step, which I think he will want to do himself. Okay, well, hey, listen, Peter, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No problem at all. I've enjoyed it. Um, and uh, we will be back next week with uh, something else. Don't know what it is, but there's there's always something, isn't there? So uh, we'll, we'll be back for that. Thanks very That's much. And uh, <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, goodbye. Uh, until the next time. Bye.